listening to Rattle and Pedal, diversion thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Your hosts are Jason Malicki and Jeff McKay. So Jeff, we agreed on what we were going to talk about today. And then in the process of preparing for, and I think we also agreed that we were talking about the wrong thing. So we've made a pivot in the last, like, I don't know, 30 seconds. And so it's going to be really interesting to see where this ends up. But well, the working title was segmentation in five steps, a market segmentation in five steps, I guess. And the setup, we realized that that was the wrong topic, that it should be ideal client in five steps, identifying your ideal client in five steps. And by the time we publish this, it'll probably be something else. It'll probably be like, you know, I don't know, something different. So anyway, I think the topic of discussion is ideal client. How do you identify your ideal client and what does it look like and why does that matter? So maybe let's just start with the beginning. You described it as a, as a, as a morass. Morass. Yeah, it is a morass. I can never yeah. say that word. A morass of, of concepts, positioning, segmentation, ideal client, core capabilities, they're all kind of mashed together in a melting pot of confusion. And we're trying to kind of get to the heart of that. Did I capture this correctly? I think you did. The way you articulate that is illustrative of so many of the conversations that I have with clients, and I suspect you have as well. What problem are we solving? Yeah. Um, when you come in, it's it's all about growth. But more often than not, I think the issue comes down to what markets are we going to serve and why? Most of the work I do always comes down to go-to-market strategy. And it's answering that question, what markets are we going to go after and how are we going to go after? It is a perennial problem in professional services and I think it gets more confusing as a firm evolves and hits these various growth points along its its life cycle. And it's, it tries to manage its performance envelope because there are new services, new customers, new trends that, that pop up in business and firms have to react to them. Well, they feel they have to react. Often. Yes. Sometimes yes. they don't. But no, I, I want to ask you a question though, before we get, so you described it as what markets we're going to serve and why, but we're really talking about ideal client. I think what's interesting about that is markets feels like vague and it's a one to many bunch of, it's a, it's a, it's a concept. It's a construct. It's, we're going to go after this market. It's a group of companies that are clustered together for some reason. Ideal client is a person. So Help us reframe that tension a little bit. Like when you say, well, what markets are we going to serve and why? Why do you make the mental leap to say, let's focus on our ideal client? So let's let's think about the kind of textbook definition of what segmentation is. It's the subdivision of a large, you know, let's say homogeneous market into identifiable segments that have and I think this is where we start to move over into ideal client, similar needs, wants, and demand characteristics. And the reason you want to segment those is it gives you the focus you need in order to align resources against it. So if you were to say, how would I know if I have a good market segment, that high level concept of, of a marketing segmentation, they would have three characteristics. One, 
they would have the similar attributes and wants and needs where you could look at them and say, yes, you know, all 18 to 34 year old men do not have the same perspective on the world, right? It needs to be subdivided. So that's characteristic one. Characteristic two, they have to be growing, right? That's That gives you the growth opportunity. It does no good to segment, you know, some identifiable market, but it's not growing to drive the growth that your firm deserves or desires. And three, they have to be profitable. You have to be able to bring your capabilities to that market and they have to be willing to pay you for the services you're providing. So the segmentation, we're looking for scale, we're looking for growth, and we're looking for profitability to come out of those those things. But you started with wants and needs. You started with like things that feel more tied to the individual and you ended with things that feel more tied to the organization. Yes. But you know, I'm thinking to myself, well, duh. Yeah. yeah, of course. Because these are individuals representing organizational yeah. needs. So yeah, that that makes sense, doesn't it? Well, it does. And I think it's interesting because you and I were talking about this in the setup. I think in January of this year, we had a pretty large influx of inquiries. I had a lot more sales conversations in January than maybe I did in, say, December. And what I found interesting was as I was looking at all of these different inquiries, almost every one of these firms had a positioning problem of some kind. It was just, it was very uh-huh. clear and apparent to me that there was not, the positioning was not sound, it wasn't clear who they were targeting and why. And, you know, and what I started kind of struggling with was the, was the process for it. It was like, well, do you start with the markets they serve and why, to use that language? You make the decision that says, we're going to focus only on hospitality, and here's why. Or do you focus on the characteristics of the individual? You're looking for clients, you always use the phrase, and I'll, clients that value the value we provide and they're willing to pay a premium for it. I may have tacked on the premium piece, maybe that's not in your way, but it seems to me like that's no, what that's right. you want, right? Mm-hmm. So do you focus on that individual and their psychographic and mental state and what they're interested in, or do you focus first on the company and the industry and the geography and the stuff that normally characterizes a B2B type marketing initiative? I guess, super long-winded comment. I guess there's a question in there somewhere. I'm asking you, where do you start? Do you start with the deal client or do you start with the market segment? Well, I think you start wherever, but they- Classic consultant's answer. I don't know, start wherever you feel like it. This is why Prudent Petal's marketing strategy model looks like a molecule. They're all interrelated. You can jump into any one, but you cannot look at it in isolation. Yeah. So what you're feeling and what you described that I described as kind of a morass is an organization's inability to address all those things simultaneously. But they have to address them all simultaneously because they're all interrelated and they're constantly evolving and and firms are needing to adjust, as I said, because of the performance envelope phenomenon. But you just start in one place or the other and pretty soon the questions, as, as you just described, begin to rise and you're like, well, if we choose that, that means this. Or does that mean this? So the art to segmenting the market and finding that ideal client is doing them all simultaneously. So you're thinking about maybe markets and company size and 
industry and geography at the same time you're thinking about individual buyers and their wants and needs and their drivers and their tensions and their frustrations and their concerns and their you know what they're excited about you're sort of doing them in parallel yes and to complicate things even more you're looking within your own organization and how your people are reacting and delivering services to those people yeah because the goal I think of of positioning and segmentation and how we go to market is to understand where our firm shows up as its best self and to show up as your best self more often. Yeah. I want to underline something real quick before you move on. When you say our firm shows up as its best self, that means your people show up as their best selves. And so you have this responsibility to the people in that sense that that I think you've brought out in our kind of pre-discussion on this that I find interesting. Yeah. And I think when you get your market segmentation and your ideal client right, there's a synergy that happens. Client and client service begin to play off of one another and really compliment one another. And people would say this, you know, it's it's kind of a magical way. I love working with that client. Yeah. You know, I love my consultant. That's because they're aligned. Yeah. It's funny um, you say that. That's, I, have a, I have a random comment I'm just going to throw in to, to give the example. Like we have a, I have a client that is a very rare client for us and that it's a, it's a pure consulting relationship, sort of a reactive relationship where we're not driving a project, we're not driving a program big billion dollar publicly traded firm and the digital marketing lead basically just said, Jason, I, I just need someone to talk to. He's like, to talk about the concepts I'm trying to drive in this organization, I need someone to bounce those things off of because I don't feel like the people around me are getting what I'm trying to to do. And he's like, I need someone to like like test these ideas with so that I know how to approach them. And, and, and someone who's at the same, it, so it was, it was very much a like, I'm hiring you because we value the same things. And I want to have conversation with someone who values the things I value and can help me figure out how to move them forward in my organization. And it had nothing to do with like, you know, well, I shouldn't say it had nothing, but it had less to do with our market disposition and our, you know, that kind of thing. It was more about, he had spent a lot of time with our thought leadership and knew me well enough to say, you, you value the things I value. Hmm. Simpatico. Ah, <laughs> my least favorite word. Anyway, okay, okay. Let's pivot a little bit. I think we've come to clarity on this, right? So we opened with saying like, is this about segmentation or positioning? Although we never really use the word positioning, but I think we narrowed it on that really let's focus on ideal client. And I don't think we came to a conclusion on where to start, but I think in talking with you, it feels to me like it makes more sense as a consultant to work with a client to start with ideal client. Start with, let's talk about the clients that you really do well with and why. And then that maybe leads you backwards into market structures and things. I don't know, but yes, you 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 got it right. Oh, hallelujah! You got it right. So what's hidden? I think we've covered why this matters, right? Why we're talking about this. I think it's. Well, yeah. babe, do we need to underline that one last time? I mean, like, why does this matter? It matters because firms often fall into a morass of just going to market, but not knowing what markets and why. Why and as a result are sub-optimizing their investment and growth because you've yeah. lacked focus and focus can rear its head at the positioning level and at the targeting level, if you will, the segments that you're going after. 
I managed to delete this in my notes, but you said something in the setup that I want to underline. You said basically every successful marketing initiative starts with a clear understanding of the ideal client you're hoping to attract. I paraphrased it because we were using different yep. language, but I think that's why it matters. Because it's like, if you don't have clarity on that, nothing really works. Or maybe it's off-putting. I'll use a bad example. Software companies, you see this a lot. I mean, I own a small agency and they approach every small agency with the same message, but every mm -hmm. small agency isn't in the same mental space or in the same you know business life cycle. And so the message is often off-putting for me anyway, because it'll it sort of says things to me like, well, that's not really what I'm struggling with at all. Yeah. Because they don't really understand the segment they're trying to target as well as they think they do. They don't know their ideal client. Jason, I think that probably is why this is so well, important. important. Clients want to work with people that understand them. Yeah. Where they are, what they're struggling with, what their ambitions are. And this is why nailing your point of view to demonstrate that understanding is so critical. And you can't throw something against the wall and hope something sticks or to use another metaphor, you know, shotgun approach. It's just not effective anymore. You have to have a laser-like approach and segmentation is the key to a laser-like approach. Have you ever noticed that old marketing language is all like war metaphors? Who is our yes. target audience? Who, you know, we're going to use a shotgun approach. It's all like like this like war horrible stuff. And I, I've actually come to this conclusion. I love ideal client because it's like, it's softer. It's like, these are humans. These are people that I'm trying to attract to me to have a relationship with. Not people I'm trying to shoot with a gun from a thousand miles away at a target audience. <laughs> so it sounds horrible. So I feel like marketing needs to change its language. And whenever I hear clients use that language, I'm like, can we use different language? I just don't like that language. Yeah. So it's a battle. It's a battle. You're listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on growing your professional services firm. Your hosts are Jason Malicki, principal of Rattleback, the marketing agency for professional services firms, and Jeff McKay, former CMO and founder of strategy consultancy, Prudent Pedal. If you find this podcast helpful, please help us by telling a friend and rating us on iTunes. Thank you. Now back to Jason and Jeff. Okay, yeah. so let's get into the how. I want, I want to get into the five steps. This is a five steps episode, ideal client in five steps. How do we do it? How do we identify our ideal client? What are the steps to, to figure that? So I think there's very simple steps and this is intuitive. It does not have to be over-engineered. It doesn't require, I think, huge investments in primary research, although validating some of these hypotheses could be very useful, but very simple and straightforward. First step, ask your people who their favorite clients are. Just ask your people and get a broad swath of your team to understand who are the clients they just love to show up. And this is important because it gives you the soft side of your ideal client. Because as we said, employees want to work with people they like and clients like to work with people they like and trust or easy to do business with. And if you ask your people that question, it's not going to take them long to answer. Yeah. And you ask them why too. Why that person? I assume. Yeah, that's coming. Oh, sorry. That's coming. Sorry. Let's just get the list. Okay. Let's get the list. Right? Okay. So step one. Get the list. Ask your people who All your right, favorite So number two, are. number two, and I think this is critical, 
it's a little harder lift, but it's important, is you have to do a profitability assessment of your entire client base. Revenue is important. You have to look at, you know, how much revenue a given client is is generating. That's important, but it's how much money of that are you getting to keep? Yeah. Because you want to be able to see hidden costs of serving particular type of clients. So you want to identify those clients that maybe consume a disproportionate amount of resources or demand out of scope services that are difficult because they can test every expense or they require special treatment or you're writing off work with these. It gives you a deeper understanding of where the breakdown could be in terms of the ideal client because there's something about those clients that is leading to those negative demands on the organization. Okay. Step two is profitability assessment. I'm trying to think through, I don't want to go deeper there. There's, there's, there's a lot to talk about there because it's like, how do you assess profit? Is it, I mean, I know it sounds silly, but there are also, like, there's multiple layers of how you think about profit in a, in a firm sometimes. Let's go to step three. I think step three is important. So step three. So step three, take those two lists, identify the overlap in them. Okay. Who are the favorite clients to work with and which ones are most profitable? And those are going to give you a clearer direction of the clients that value the value you provide. And what are you looking for in the overlap? Are you looking for organizational characteristics, individual characteristics, industries, sizes? Like what, what are you, in the overlap, what are you trying to, to see? So that's step four. Oh, sorry. I keep doing that. It, no, it's, it's fine. Maybe we could do the segmentation in two steps. <laughs> Step four is to develop a list of the attributes that these clients share. So this is where we get into more traditional segmentation. So look at the simple demographics of these clients. Yeah, are they public? Are they private? Are they big? Are they small? Is there a particular industry that they're coming out of? Is there a particular geographic reach? or specific buyer function or relationship at the highest level of the client. So try to understand what is the basic makeup of these. And that's relatively straightforward. You can see those type of things without having to do a lot of work. You know, if you have 40 clients in one industry, try to understand, you know, what is it about that industry? But then here's where the hard work is done and the most important work is done. Go much deeper and look at the culture and mindset of these clients. Yeah. And ask questions like this. If it's a functional buyer, uh, what's the company's point of view on that function? Do they see it strategic or are they Ooh, tactical, great question. for example? Mm-hmm. You know, is if you're selling technology, is technology a strategic enabler of those organizations or is it an expense? What's the the buyer's worldview on the industry, the function, the issues, and our solutions? How do they think about those things? Are the company's management systems simple or complex? Are these sophisticated organizations or unsophisticated organizations? Are these organizations risk takers or are they afraid of risk? How do these organizations make decisions? Do they make them as a collective where consensus is really big or 
they're more autocratic and individualistic in how they, they make them. Do they look at firms like yours as partners or vendors? Do they prefer to work with big brands like a Deloitte or a PwC? Or are they more inclined to go with boutiques and upstarts? There's a whole series of questions you can ask that start to hone in on these attributes that very clearly and succinctly separate one potential client from another. Well, one quick question. Do you keep a working list of these types of questions that you, you use for routinely? And if so, is that something you're willing to share? Yeah. Yeah. I'll put something in the show notes for that. Because I think you had had a lot of interesting questions in that list that I didn't comment on that were ones that I hadn't really dawned on me in the past. I hadn't really thought about, but I think it's really interesting for sure a lot of listeners feel the same way. It's like, well, what, what, you know, when we start thinking about these attributes, what are other questions we're not thinking of that we should be asking ourselves? Because I love some of the ones you had in there. I was, I was laughing about the consensus decision one. I was thinking about our call with Matt Dixon. I never said this in that call, by the way. I have this vision of, of an organization where they take consensus decision-making to a new level, where they have everybody in the Zoom on the decision-making process, and they take a Zoom vote of 250 <laughs> decision-makers. That's going to be the new, the, the org of, oh. of 2025, right? We have a big strategy decision to make here, and we've collected a group, a senior decision team of 1,000 people. We need you to vote on which direction we should go. So, oh, gosh, that would be painful. Can you imagine? Anyway, okay. So, but I do think it is helpful because you asked a lot of really smart questions that I just, some of which I just hadn't even thought of. How do you, I guess, before we go to step five, and maybe I'm bleeding step five again by accident, um, how do you document this? How do you organize this? And there's, you know, we've talked about a lot about kind of our mutual kind of like meh towards personas. This isn't a persona exercise, or is it? When you're done with this process, how do you sort of like make this feel real to people and know what to do with it? Yeah. You can't necessarily put it on a piece of paper and and socialize it. It has to be ingrained in the organization, which means, and this leads to step five, is you have to build the infrastructure and the plans and strategies to go after these clients. That means operating discipline in your go, no-go decisions when you're evaluating sales opportunities. You measure each opportunity against the criteria. Does it offer these characteristics? And you're not going to get a 100% matchup you know, all the time, but the goal is to get 80% of your business to 80% of those attributes, yeah. right? And in order to do that, it has to be baked into your management systems and how you go about doing business. And it's being able to say no to that opportunity that offers a big revenue payday, but is completely opposite of what your ideal client is. We talked about this with Brian Caffarelli about good sale, bad sale. Yeah. You have to have the operating discipline to say, oh, that's tempting, but no, because we know the downside effects in terms of overall profitability, its impact on our people, and the potential reputational risk for something that goes awry. And that's hard, but that's what separates top firms from average firms, is they bake that into their operating discipline. At every level. Okay. I actually want to go deeper there, but I know we can't. We have to pick that up another time because I think there's a whole level of conversation around 
what you just said, infrastructure, systems, strategies, and plans. What does that look like, right? Like it's like easy to say, and it's another thing to talk about what it looks like. And I, and, I, and I really want to do that, but I also know that we're not in a position to do that today. So, okay, so let's do a uh, let's do a brief recap to close it out. So we we end up where we thought we would end up with you know identifying your ideal client in five steps. You want to give kind of the the, the rapid fire five step rundown for people before we leave. Sure. Understand that you could be attacking any number of problems manifesting themselves as lack of focus, whether that's positioning, segmentation, or an understanding of your ideal client. That will give you a sense that you're sub-optimizing how you're attacking the market. That's what's going to kick this off. There you go again, attacking the market. See, see, see. I did. I did it again. Classic old school marketing. It's crazy, isn't it? It, 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 We all do it. I do it too. But it's just weird how like that. Where'd that language come from? How did it end there? We we should do an episode on that. Anyway, keep going. (laughs) The battle for mind share. Battle for yeah. Battle for mind share. Crazy. All right. So five steps. One: ask your people who their favorite clients are. Get the soft side of ideal client. Two: do a profitability assessment of your entire client base kind of get the hard factual side of the business. Step three, identify the overlap between those two lists, the profitable clients that your people love to work with. Step four, look at those companies and buyers on that list and develop a list of attributes that makes these clients ideal. What is it about these clients that really gel with your firm and allow your people to show up as their best selves. Best selves, I like that. And then fifth, bake the ideal client and those attributes into all your management systems and and operations into your point of view and your thought leadership about going deeper and understanding the needs of those clients and be very disciplined about sales opportunities and pursuits that you're willing to go after. And that's the hardest part that separates the top firms from average firms. I love the way you closed number five, by the way, because you took it like to a level of clarity and succinctness there that we weren't able to get to in our first go round on it. <laughs> so it's great. Building your management systems, your operations, your point of view, your thought leadership, go deeper and understand their needs, be disciplined. I like that disciplined piece and your business development efforts. Wonderful. Well, thank you. This was fabulous. This was, you know, I, I think I think we both were kind of a little fuzzy on where to start, but I'm glad with where we ended up. You know, ideal client in five steps, super helpful, super useful for everyone, myself included. So maybe our new tagline should be prudent pedal, fuzzy thoughts on how to <laughs> market, grow, and, and lead your professional services firm. Fuzzy ideas on how to market. <laughs> that's a big seller, right? I think that's a best-selling business book. Oh, man. All right, buddy. I'll see you. Cool. See you. Thank you for listening to Rattle and Pedal, divergent thoughts on marketing and growing professional services firms. Find content related to this episode at rattleandpedal.com. Rattle and Pedal is also available on iTunes and Stitcher. 